Colossians chapter 3. Have you guys been following the news about this uh, Pope gig? And uh, the reaction from Islam? Very interesting, isn't it? That Islam claims to be a religion of peace. Uh, I saw a woman on Fox News. She was a representative for uh, some Islamic society in America. And she was being interviewed about the Pope's comments. And she said that it was an outright lie that Muhammad had ever conquered by the sword and forced people to convert. Well, that's a total revision of history. That's insane. How can you make that statement on national television? It's a historical fact. The Islam wields the sword, and it's being manifest in our presence today. I looked at the news just before the service started here a little while ago, and on foxnews.com I saw this article. It says, West Bank churches burned in light of Muslim anger over papal comments. Because of what the Pope said, there's Muslims in the West Bank burning churches right now. Now, what the Pope did was, was he, was making, uh, he was having a talk about rejecting the use of violence by religious movements. And then he quoted a Byzantine emperor from hundreds of years ago who said at one time that some of the teachings of the prophet Muhammad were evil and humane, particularly his command to spread the, uh, uh, the faith by the sword. And Islam says, that's not fair. We, Muhammad never said that, and we never do that. And then to prove it, they start burning churches in the West Bank. It goes on and it says, uh, a stone church that was built 170 years ago was torched before dawn. Its entire inside was destroyed. On Saturday, Muslims hurled firebombs and opened fire at five churches in the West Bank in Gaza Strip to protest the Pope's comments. Religion of peace, my eye. This is the face of Islam. We've been warning you against this, about this. We've been asking you to be educated as Christians. Islam is not a religion of peace. That is a lie. That is a falsehood. This is the face of Islam. Listen. There's one, not even, just, it wasn't even a bad comment. Do you know how much more horrifically people slander Jesus Christ on the college campuses every day? Do you understand how Jesus is slandered? When was the last time we picked up arms and started blowing up places, opening fire? Listen, it's not the same God, Allah and the God of the Bible. It's not the same God. This is not a peaceful religion. They have an agenda as prescribed by the Quran. And the way the agenda is being manifest today is that they earnestly desire the destruction of Israel, America, Christians, and Jews. Do you fall into one of those four groups? Yeah, most of you are in two of them. Islam is not your friend. It's not a religion of peace. Please be aware in these last days. Please be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, we're in Colossians. That had nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. That was just my little thing. Now we're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 6 today. Just verse 6, that's all. But we'll start in verse 5 for context. Well, we better start in verse 4 for context, really. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed... Then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We talked about that last week. We talked about the rapture and the second coming. Therefore, okay, in light of these things, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. The Bible says here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, that it is because of such things, as the sins mentioned in verse 5, that the wrath of God will come. Today we're talking about the wrath of God, and we will begin to talk about hell. Very interesting on a day where ashes are falling from the sky outside, and it's about 110 degrees in the sanctuary right now. But that's our topic for today. Nobody's going to enjoy this message today. Nobody's going to enjoy this message. Listen. If you're a liberal Christian and you're moving away from recognizing the Bible as the infallible, 
absolutely correct and authoritative word of God, then you don't like this message. Because you fall into that camp. Most of you have rejected hell as being a literal thing. Though the Bible speaks about it very clearly. So you won't like this message today if you're in that camp, if you don't believe the Bible to be the absolute word of God. If you do believe the Bible to be the absolute word of God, and you believe in the wrath of God, and in hell is a literal place, you hate this message today. Because there's a love in your heart for humanity. And you dread the thought of anybody experiencing the wrath of God or the reality of hell. This is not a popular message. Nobody should like this message today. But it's the truth. Truth is not always fun. Simply the truth. Let's pray that the Lord would bless our Bible study. Lord, thank you for your word. We do believe it to be inerrant and fallible and absolutely right in everything that it asserts and affirms. We just pray today, Lord, that you would impart truth to us through your word. Lord, I'm unable to do what you've called me to do today apart from you. So we would ask together in prayer that you would anoint my thoughts, that you would anoint my lips, that every word that comes from these lips would be from your throne. And Lord, also we ask that you would anoint our hearts to receive the word, that our hearts would be soft, that you would really author our hearts this morning that we would see the truth of your justice and your wrath, but we would cling to the depth of your love and the cross. And you would strike that balance in our heart, in our lives, in our evangelism. Make us more like you today, Lord. Stir us up by the teaching of your word and the moving of your spirit for the furtherance of your kingdom now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a translation other than the New American Standard, uh, you may have noticed that in some of your Bibles will have it, some of yours won't, and, and added few words at the end of verse 6. Verse 6 reads in all of our Bibles, basically, it is uh, on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And then some translations also include upon the sons of disobedience. The reason that some translations have it and some don't is because some ancient manuscripts contained that last phrase and some didn't. So whether or not it's included in the translation that you have on your lap right now depends on which set of manuscripts those translators for your translation used. So some of the ancient manuscripts had it, some of them didn't. No big deal. The same phrase is used in the same context in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. So we know it's biblical phraseology. We know that Paul said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's just question as to whether or not it's here in Colossians. Don't sweat it. Don't fret it. It's not a big idea or it's not a big deal rather. But the main idea is this that the wrath of God is coming. Now, the immediate question that ought to be asked in the thoughtful heart is this. Why, if God is a God of love, and that's a paramount thing about God, that's what we're told in the book of 1 John, God is love. Why, if God is love and a God of love, then why is He also a God of wrath? Because you cannot escape that reality in your Bible unless you cut it to shreds. He is a God of love, He is love, but He does have wrath, and He is a God of wrath. Why is that? How do those two exist together? A frequently asked question. Well, the first thing we need to realize when pondering that question is this. The wrath of God is a reflection of the holiness of God. The wrath of God is a reflection, or it might even be better said, is the fruit of The holiness of God. Now, two basic ideas in the concept of God's holiness. One being otherness and the other being moral purity. Uh, The the, the basic concept of holy, it means that God is other. When the angels say you are holy, 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 inherent is that concept is that he is other. He is not like you and I or any other created being. Isn't that good news? It's good news. We were made in His image. He's not made in our image. He is not like us. He is totally other. He is infinite. We are finite. He is perfect. We are messed up. So the concept of holiness, it speaks of His otherness, 
but it also speaks of his moral purity. That he is absolutely pure in the moral sense. Now, we can't even comprehend it. We cannot comprehend the holiness of God as it pertains to purity. Because we're fallen creatures. We're fallen beings. And so in that, we have become perverted. We have become corrupt. We have a sin nature. We're not like the Lord. We're fallen. We're corrupted. We're perverted. And so even when we speak of morals in the highest sense that we're able to as humans, it never measures up to the moral standard of God. And it's because of God's moral standard that he has wrath. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, listen, God does not compromise on his standard. Isn't that good to know? God doesn't compromise. We're always disappointed with people that compromise. You're very disappointed when a pastor does that. You're very disappointed when a president does that. How much more disappointed will we be if our God did that? The good news is our God does not compromise. He has an absolute standard of perfection, and he won't fudge it. He won't fake it. He won't blow it. He maintains that standard. But here's the problem. You and I don't. Amen? We are not perfect. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We do not measure up to His holiness. And in that, there comes the accumulation of debt. Because it's not just like, uh, you know, I tried to run a four-minute mile and I didn't make it. You know, it took me 15 minutes. No big deal. These things are not inconsequential. They may seem so to our perverted humanity. Oh, I sinned, big deal. Total lie. Committed adultery, nobody knows. Cheated on my taxes, no big deal. They may seem inconsequential to you and I, but to God, they are not inconsequential. You see, because of his absolute moral purity and the standard which he has set, these things are an affront to God and they must be dealt with. They must be dealt with. Somebody has to pay the debt that is accumulated by my sin, by your sin, by humanity's sin. And so what God has to do is maintain his righteousness or his justice. He has to maintain his righteousness or his justice. We all despise when somebody is crooked. Uh, there's an umpire in this room, uh, and he's a very good umpire. I've played uh, softball on his field. He is an excellent umpire, and he's honest and he's fair. But if ever you're playing a game, and there's a crooked umpire, and he makes bad calls, and he lets people get away with things, doesn't that bum you out? Now, it's inconsequential. It's a game. But it bums you out nonetheless. Even more so one of our judges. When somebody is guilty of breaking the law and one of our judges for some reason of corruptness lets him go, we're always bummed at that. And yet, in the heart of humanity, there is something that hopes that God will just let you off the hook. There's some part of you that hopes, oh, God will just kind of, you know, turn a blind eye to my sin. He'll just kind of wink at it. He'll just sweep it under the rug. If God were to do that, he would not be righteous. He would not be just. He would not be God. He would be a man. But you see, he's perfect. He's holy. He's other. He's morally pure. He's righteous and he's just. And to be God, he has to maintain that righteousness, or that justice. And so to maintain it, he must hand out wrath for the debt of sin. He must hand out wrath for the debt of sin. If you were speeding and you got a ticket and it was 200 bucks, and you didn't have to pay it, justice wasn't met. You might have experienced mercy, Someone might have given you mercy. Hey, man, you don't got to pay the 200 bucks. I'm giving you mercy. Ah, yes, we love mercy. You see, but listen, God can't just let it slide. There has to be justice that is met. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. 
Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, talking about the wrath of God being necessitated by the justice or the righteousness of God. We'll start reading in verse 23, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is in verse 24, But we are being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, there we see what we've been talking about in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to the standard. But it does say that we can be justified. Now, justification is a legal term. It's a legal term. Here's what it means in the economy of God to be justified. To be justified means to be declared innocent and righteous. To be declared free from guilt, but also to be given positive moral standing before God. And it says that even though we fall short of God's standard, we can be justified, declared innocent, and given merit in heaven. How does it say it happens? Look at your Bible. Look at your Bible. Please, people, in the name, please. By grace, thank you. That was so easy. I love you. By grace. We are justified by grace, meaning it's nothing that you can earn. You cannot work off your debt, and you cannot so impress God that he says, oh, I've got to get this cat in heaven. This guy is awesome. The book of Isaiah says, even the things that we consider to be righteous deeds are as filthy rags according to his holiness. And his standard. So we can become, humanity can become justified, declared innocent, and given positive moral standing before God by grace. Grace simply means undeserved favor. You didn't deserve it, but God did it because it's in his character to extend such things. Now we begin to see that the justice of God is tempered or balanced or in harmony with the grace of God. Yes, he must be just. He must punish sin. But he's so merciful. He's so compassionate. And he's so full of grace that by grace, he will justify people. He'll declare you innocent and give you positive moral merit before God. But he doesn't do it by winking his eye. He doesn't do it by wiggling his nose. It's not an abracadabra thing. Remember, justification is a legal term. So how does it say it can happen? There, the end of verse 24. What does it say? Redemption through who? Oh, yes, Jesus Christ. Here's where Jesus comes in. Somebody has to pay the price for sin. Somebody has to pay for it because God is just. Jesus Christ pays the price for our sin that we might be justified by grace. Look what it says in the next verse. Verse 25, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, propitiation, I've shared this word with you before. Very simply, A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. So Jesus Christ dying upon the cross, satisfied, was the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard, the judgment, the justice, and the wrath of God. Jesus satisfied his standard because Jesus lived a perfect life. He satisfied his justice because with his blood, he paid the price for my sins, your sins, humanity's sins. He satisfied God's judgment and wrath because he took it upon himself at the cross. And so through Jesus Christ, the standard, the righteousness, the justice, and the wrath of God are all satisfied so that you can be justified. 
declared innocent and have positive moral standing before God. The righteousness of Jesus accredited to your account. This is an incredible thing. If this don't turn you on, you ain't got to switch. This is unbelievable that God would do this. And when he does this, then the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that our standing before him is in grace. We now stand before God having been justified in grace. Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor that when God looks at you, if you're his child, you've repented of your sins, you recognize that Jesus died on the cross for you, you've received him as your Lord and Savior, God looks at you with undeserved favor. Just, oh, I love him. I just want to pour blessings into his life. And God deals with us then according to grace. But this is no small thing. I want you to see what that accomplishes then as we continue in verse 25, second sentence. It says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance or patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus dying upon the cross, paying the price for our sins and raising from the dead three days later but specifically the work of the cross, was to demonstrate, it says here, the righteousness of God. Because here's what he did in time past. God was patient with sin. He allowed people to sin and 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 to sin. Now, sometimes God brought judgment and wrath immediately. But historically, biblically speaking, it is not God's way to always deal out immediate retribution for sin. Aren't you glad? Can you imagine every time you sin, God is bam, just just, ah, just justice every time. So God has had forbearance or patience throughout history. But in that then, there is the accumulation of the debt of sin. Look now in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and patience and forbearance, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So the reason that God does not immediately deal out retribution for sin is because the wages of sin is death. If God did that, you would be dead. But in his patience, he's being kind, wanting to draw you to repentance that he can justify you, declare you innocent and righteous before God. But do you think lightly of his patience and his kindness, which draws us to repentance? It says in verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So we're told here that while God is being patient, humanity is storing up for themselves wrath. Remember, he's totally just, he's totally righteous. He's not going to turn a blind eye. He won't sweep it under the rug. He's not dealing out immediate retribution but he is keeping track of it. The Bible's very clear on that. And so what is happening is humanity is laying up a greater and greater debt of sin. It had to be dealt with or God wouldn't be just. So he poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ at the cross to demonstrate his righteousness. Someone had to pay for that wrath or he's not righteous. So Jesus satisfied the wrath of God to demonstrate the righteousness of God. It says here in verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now he can justify you, declare you innocent, and give you moral merit before God, and still be just because the wrath was dealt with through Jesus Christ. The standard was met through Jesus Christ, and justice was done upon the cross that now he can have grace and mercy to you and I. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. It is the most awesome thing in the world, this plan of the cross that God came up with. He demonstrates his righteousness through pouring out his wrath on Jesus that he might still be just and justify you and I. Now, 
For those who refuse to be forgiven by God, I mean, it sounds so dumb, doesn't it? But people do this all the time. There's probably some of you in this room. You've heard that God loves you. By the way, not only did God demonstrate His righteousness on the cross, but God demonstrated His love on the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Please look at it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Notice, God demonstrated his love upon the cross. Please do not reject his love. There's some of you here, you've heard about the love of God for you. You've heard about the cross and you say, well, it's just not for me, brother, it's for you. Do you have skin? Then you sin. And if you sin, you need to be forgiven. And forgiveness is only through Jesus Christ. Nobody else in history ever offered to give their life for yours. Jesus did it. Nobody else in history ever predicted their own death and resurrection. Jesus did it, thereby proving that He is the only Savior of humanity. All you have to do is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you shall be saved. You just got to come to Him and say, I believe that you are the God of the universe, and that Jesus, you died on the cross for me, and you rose from the dead that you might forgive me and have a relationship with me. Lord, forgive me. Now, if you reject that forgiveness of Jesus Christ, then judicially speaking, there's nothing left for you but wrath. There's no other option. You either allow your wrath to be dealt with at the cross or you will bear it yourself. Jesus paid the price. You just have to receive it. You just have to make it your own. You just have to actuate it. But if you reject it, then you and you alone will bear wrath. And there's three components to the wrath of God or three phases, or modes, or time frames. There is the wrath of God now, the wrath of God in the future, and the wrath of God in eternity. The wrath of God now, the wrath of God in the future, and the wrath of God in eternity. For those who reject Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on them right now. That's point number one, okay? The wrath of God now. The wrath of God presently abides on all who have not trusted Christ for salvation. You guys remember John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus and that whole gig. Nicodemus comes to Jesus late at night. And Jesus, I know you're from God. And asking about how man could be born again and all that. And then you remember John 3.16. You remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have have everlasting life. You might even remember John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. But do you remember John 3.36? John 3.36 makes things so clear. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When you come to Jesus and repent of your sins and ask him to forgive you and be your Lord and Savior, you're given eternal life. Is it awesome? It's wonderful. If you reject that, then the wrath of God, the wrath of God excuse me, still abides on you, judicially speaking. And you are what the Bible calls, this is horrible. Some of you are going to try to beat me up after this. This is awful. But the Bible calls you in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, children of of wrath. Not a child of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, as many as have received Christ Jesus, to them has been given the right to be called children of God. You only become a child of God when you enter into his kingdom. Until you make him your king, you ain't in the kingdom. You make him your king by surrendering to him and asking Him to forgive you, wash your sins, and then you're admitted into the kingdom. But until then, the Bible terms you a child of wrath. 
and the wrath of God abides on you. Now, he's trying to draw you by his loving kindness, we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He's drawing you by being nice to you. God is nice to you. Did you know that? By way of the fact that he doesn't kill you, God is nice to you. The wages of sin is death. And so he's being patient with you, and, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. He gave the Holy Spirit to specifically the church, but the Holy Spirit has a ministry in the whole world. It is to convict the world of judgment, sin, and righteousness. Convict means convince. So God's Spirit is trying to convince you, hey man, I know you think you're perfect, but you're not. You're a sinner just like Brit and the other 500 people in here. You're a sinner, you need to be forgiven. And the Spirit of God says to your heart, God loves you. He created you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He chose your color of eyes. He loves you. He wants you to spend eternity with him. But he's totally righteous and holy. And you've got this sin debt issue. But he loves you so much, he wants to pay for it in his son, Jesus Christ. If you'll just come and repent and ask for forgiveness, then he will forgive you, and you will enter into and experience and live in that love, both here and in eternity. So, you think you're getting away with something, but really it's God being kind to you, not dealing out immediate retribution, and trying to draw you by loving kindness. But if you continue to reject that, then there will come a time where God will turn you over to your own passions. Here's your homework assignment for this week. Please write this down. You'll be dealing with this in your home groups. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 32. It's part of your homework. Make sure that you read that. In there, you'll see the description that no man has an excuse to reject the reality and the truth of Jesus Christ. And if someone continues to do that, then here's what God will do in his judgment. There comes a time where God says, okay, you go do what you want to do. I've been trying to draw you. I've been trying to convince you. I've been revealing my love to you. I sent a six foot six preacher to tell you about my love. You've rejected it. You do what you want to do. And you'll read there then what humanity does is dive headlong into perversion. And for that, they reap the recompense in their own body, you'll read in your homework. In other words, they reap what they sow. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And it is the present wrath of God, the way God's wrath is manifest right now. And that there comes a time where he says, that's it. You go do what you want to do. Go ahead. And he takes his hand off you and the Holy Spirit is no longer drawing you and you are left with the destructive force of your own sin apart from the mercy of God. And that's wrath. We don't see it that way. We call it freedom. I want to do what I want to do. Get off my back, Christian. Why are you bugging me? Book of Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, its way is death. When God takes his hand off your life and says, you go do what you want to do, you will experience the heartache and the heartbreak and the destruction of that. And that is part of the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God that's manifest now. Please respond to God's loving kindness lest you experience his wrath. Now, there's another part or time frame to the wrath of God that we'll mention right now. Point number two. The wrath of God will be poured out in the physical realm on the unrepentant in the future. Okay, the wrath of God will be poured out in a worldwide sort of way in the future. It's known as the tribulation period. I already gave you these references last week. But in the book of Revelation, we are told explicitly, without mistake, not able to confuse this, we are told for sure that the tribulation is the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. We see that several times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, 16 and 17. Chapter 11, verse 18. Chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 7. Chapter 16, verse 1. All tell us that the tribulation period is the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world. Now I want you to read 
Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And you'll see there the wrath of God. It's a horrible thing. It is absolutely horrific. And it speaks of that standard which we could never even fathom. He is so holy. Sin is such an affront to Him that the only time we really ever grasp that is when we see the wrath of God. It's the only time that we really ever grasp how horrific sin is. And that will be very obvious in the tribulation period. But I want to tell you this. It is not yet the final wrath of God. And, and, And part of what the tribulation period is, is the mercy of God giving humanity another chance to repent. It is the mercy of God mingled with his wrath, giving humanity another chance to repent. Because listen, the next phase of God's wrath is called hell. There's no chance after that. It's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment comes. That is the ultimate wrath of God. But what God is doing in the tribulation period is manifesting his wrath in the physical realm that people could look and say, oh, wow, I must be blowing it. Because we're told in the book of Revelation that the people in the tribulation period know it's the wrath of God. And now, having tried everything, he's trying now still to bring humanity to repentance by revealing his wrath. Listen, didn't God try everything else? He created man and he put him in the garden. He said, okay, here we are, man. You and me in the garden, everything is cool. It's a perfect environment. Everything is cool. Please, you can eat of any tree that you want. Just don't eat from the one tree. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not for you. What does man do? Eats from the tree. God deals with man for a while. And then God says, okay, this has gotten so corrupt. Man is so out of control. In Genesis chapter 6, he says, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to tell Noah about it. Noah, build a boat. Anybody that repents, you could get on the boat and be saved from my wrath. Nobody repents except for Noah and his immediate family and their wives. They get on the boat. They're saved from the wrath. Humanity is given a second chance to start over again. They still reject God. They still continue in sin. God says, okay, I'll choose a measly little nation. It's called Yisrael. The least of nations and obstinate and stiff-necked people, God says in his word. I will choose them to demonstrate my righteousness and my mercy through them. And he said, listen, Israel, you guys don't need a king. I'll be your king. Don't you wish God would say that to America? Y'all don't need a president. I'll be your president. Yes, Lord. We wouldn't say that. History proves it. We'd say, no, no, no. We want a president like everyone else. You see, God wanted to establish a theocracy in Israel. He said, I'll be king over you. And they said, no, no, no. We want a king that we could see like the rest of the nations. We want a tall, good-looking, broad shoulders, head and shoulders above the rest sort of king. And so they chose Saul. Samuel, the prophet, was all bummed out. God said, quit your crying, Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. God deals with Israel. Finally, he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, ha- I- I'm having a hard time getting through to these people. Uh, they're-, they're not getting the-, the-, the picture of repenting and following me, so I'll just go ahead and go down there. It's as if you wanted to communicate to slugs, and so you became one. God said, I, I somehow got to get this through to humanity. He draped himself in humanity when he was born of the virgin. Lived among us for 33 years. Lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. Died a sacrificial, atoning death upon the cross. Rose from the dead, conquering sin and death to give new life to humanity. And still people reject him. He then gives the Holy Spirit to the church by which they receive gifts to preach the gospel to the whole world. He sends the Holy Spirit into the world to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and still people reject Him. He then gives the world 2,000 years of loving kindness, of mercy, of forbearance, of patience, by which He seeks to draw people into Himself. They still reject Him. In the tribulation period, God says, there is nothing more I could do. 
I put them in a perfect environment. I wiped the slate clean and started again. I tried to be a king over them. I came down to them. I started a group of them. I empowered them. I sent my Holy Spirit to them. I gave them 2,000 years to repent. They won't do it. Now wrath. But God is still desiring that none would perish. And so in the tribulation period, God manifests his wrath in the physical realm before hell so that people might have room and time to repent. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. In the tribulation period, there will be many, 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 many people that get saved. It's awesome. A whole bunch of people that get saved. You and I know and believe that we will be raptured prior to that time. Because God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus. So the church is out of here before then. But then there's a whole bunch of people getting saved in the tribulation period. This is great. Look at it. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white clothes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, uh, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered me. This is John who's receiving the revelation. And said, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There are hundreds and thousands, I don't know, millions and millions of people that get saved in the tribulation period. God is revealing his wrath. There are people that see it and go, whoa, I've blown it. Save me, Jesus. Now, not only does God manifest his wrath now for people to repent, but he, in an unprecedented way, communicates the gospel to the world. We're told that what led to this great harvest is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists spoken of in the preceding verses of Revelation 7. There are 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, who are anointed to preach the gospel around the world during the tribulation period. And it is partially from their work that we see this great multitude of every tongue, tribe, and nation who are saved in the midst of God's wrath, manifesting the mercy and the grace of God. But as if those anointed evangelists weren't enough, we have the two witnesses in Revelation 11. I want you to read that later on. Revelation chapter 11, we have the two witnesses. These are Old Testament style witnesses preaching in Jerusalem, prophesying of the one true God. And when anybody messes with them, fire comes from their mouth and they fry them. This will be televised worldwide. We also read that the Antichrist at that time slays them in the streets of Jerusalem and that their bodies are left there for three and a half days and televised around the world. We're also told that people start to give gifts to one another because the two witnesses have been killed. It is a tribulation time perversion of something we call Christmas. They're giving gifts to each other. These witnesses of God have been murdered in the streets. There's their blood laying in Jerusalem. But after three and a half days, we're told that they raise from the dead and they're taken up to meet the Lord. That will be an unprecedented witness for the gospel like the world has never seen. And as if that wasn't enough, turn to Revelation 14, please. Revelation chapter 14. We'll start reading in verse 6. And I saw another angel 
flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs and the waters. God does something in the tribulation period in the midst of His wrath to manifest His mercy that He's never done in all of history. There is an angel flying around in the sky preaching the gospel to every living creature. It says that he says with a loud voice, give him glory because his wrath has come. You had better worship him. You better recognize him as God, as the only Savior. Now, angels are not fat little cupid stupid things like we think of. Angels are gnarly. Read Isaiah chapter 6 if you don't believe me. Isaiah hears some of them singing and just their voices are so gnarly they shake the temple that Isaiah's in. The voices of those angels. This is a special angel. He flies around in the sky preaching the gospel in the midst of the tribulation period. How else? How else? From Genesis to Revelation, how else could God demonstrate both his love and his righteousness to humanity. How else? Tell me. There's no other way. If he just ignored sin, he wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be God. If he just let us die in our sin, he wouldn't be loving. He wouldn't be God. The only way that God could demonstrate both his justice and his love and for the two of those to be in harmony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus satisfied the wrath, the standard, the righteousness, the judgment, the penalty of God that we might experience the love, mercy, grace, blessings, and eternal life of God. It is brilliant. It is wonderful. It's a no-brainer. Who rejects this? Who hears of this awesome thing and says, no, not for me? Lots of people. In the tribulation period, as many as are saved, we're told that there are many also who refuse to repent. Look in 16, Revelation 16. Revelation 16, starting in verse 9. Ah, start in verse 8. Revelation 16, 8. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And the men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. We read of the same thing in Revelation 9, 20 and 21. It is very clear that even though God's wrath is being poured out, men know the source from which it is coming. They know it is the wrath of God evidenced by the fact that when they're experiencing it here in Revelation 16, they blaspheme God. God, what are you doing? They shake their fists, they blaspheme and curse God when really all they could have done, they just needed to repent. Just repent and be saved. They knew it was God. They knew it was the wrath of God. It's evident that it is just for God to do so. But if they would just respond to the gospel and repent, they would be saved. In that, God demonstrates the depravity, the corruption, and the absolute utter rebellion of humanity. What more could God do? What more could God do? He put him in the garden. He gave him a second chance. He came down to earth. He poured out his spirit. He tried grace and mercy. Now he tries his wrath. He's preaching the gospel through the 144,000, the two witnesses and the angel in midheaven, and people still will not repent. Guess what? They deserve hell. Not because they won't repent, but because of sin. It says back in our text of Colossians chapter 3, if you can remember back that far, verse 5, it gives us a list of sins, including immorality, impurity, Passion, 
greed and idolatry. And it says it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come. Guess what? You deserve hell. I deserve hell. According to the standard of God, each one of us deserves hell and wrath. It is only because of the mercy and the grace of God that we don't receive it. So there is a wrath of God that is present. There is the wrath of God to come in the future. And we're not going to get today to hell. I hope none of you get to hell ever. But in our Bible study, we're not going to get to it. I'm on page two of my notes, and I have nine pages. So this will become another one of our fabled series. But I'll end by saying this today. I am begging you. I don't know who you are. If I knew who you are, I would come out there and I would hold your hand and I would look in your eyes and I would cry at your feet. I am begging you to repent of your sins. God demonstrated his love for you when he gave Christ Jesus to die for you. The Bible tells us that he does not want anybody to perish. He does not want anybody to experience his wrath. He wants everybody to go to heaven. The choice is solely yours. I am begging you today to repent of your sins and be forgiven. All it is is this. All it is is this. You say it in your heart, God, I'm a sinner. I do wrong things. I've blown it. I understand now that you're a savior, that you died on the cross for my sins. I want that forgiveness, Lord, forgive me. As best as I know how I repent, I turn from my sins, I turn to you. As best as I know how, Lord, forgive me and be the king of my life. Forgive me and be the king of my life. When you do that, God will forgive you and he'll be the king of your life. It's just talking to him, it's just prayer. I'm gonna lead you in the prayer right now. And you could just pray it in the quietness of your heart. I'm going to give you that chance right now. Let's all bow our heads. If you need forgiveness, just pray this. Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I know that I've walked away from you and done wrong things and that I've rejected you. But now I'm hearing of this wonderful news of your grace and your mercy, and I want it. God, I turn away from my sins. I turn toward you. I don't understand all that it means, but I ask you to forgive me and to save me. Jesus, I ask you to be my Lord. I don't even know all that that means, but I know I need it. Give me eternal life, God. Thank you. I believe now that I'm forgiven, that I'm washed white as snow. God, I I pray for everyone that prayed that prayer that you'd flood their hearts with a total sense of your grace and mercy right now. You would just totally flood them with a sense of the newness of life. Washing them white as snow, Lord. Wash away the guilt right now, Lord, please. Wash away the shame. Wash away the condemnation. Wash away that dirtiness, Lord. Wash it away. Make them brand new, Lord. Thank you that that's what your gospel does. Make them brand new, Lord. If you prayed that prayer... Jesus said that there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. If you prayed that prayer, the God who created you is so excited, he's so stoked about it, that Jesus said there is rejoicing in heaven over you. And it's much louder than this.